Hi, my name is Caitlin and welcome to the Gospel House. Our mission here at the Gospel House is to show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough, that in the gospel we can find all of our deepest needs met as the entire church responds to and applies implications of the gospel. We would love to show it with you. Check out our website, www.thegospel.house, where you can learn more about us, find out how to connect with us, ask questions, see when and where our next meeting is, and give to help advance this gospel message of Jesus Christ. We start life after Easter. Right In the church world, although if you listened to absolutely any of our Easter sermon series, you know how I feel about that statement. Right, There is no such thing as life after Easter that comes around every year. Right, As Christians, we celebrate Easter on Easter, right? but the resurrection of Jesus happened once. That's all Jesus needed. He only needed once to rise from the dead, and now he's risen. And so every day from here on out is a celebration of Easter. At least it should be, right? We as Christians should be living in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I think that this is the most important thing that we as Christians grab a hold of. This, what this resurrection life means, what it means to live in the resurrection. And so we're going to start a sermon series. It's up on the screen. Uh, for those of you watching at home, it should be up on your screen too. But it's called Beyond the Tomb, Living the Resurrection Life. Because when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, that would be pretty awesome, right? Pretty awesome that Jesus rose from the dead, but that's not where the gospel ends. Jesus also extends that invitation to every single human being born on this planet. Every human being. It's an all-inclusive package. Everybody's invited, right? But you got to accept the invitation. This is what always irks me about people who say that Christianity is exclusive, right? Because it's like, it's like getting invited to a birthday party, right? You invite everybody to a birthday party, and then the people who show up, they're the ones that get to go to the birthday party, right? You can't get mad at me, though, if I invited you to my birthday party and you didn't come. Pastor Jeremy, I didn't get any of your party favors. You know how when you're a kid, your mom always got all the party favors and like the cool kids had the coolest party favors, right? I didn't get any of the ectoblast high C. You didn't come to the party. I invited you and you didn't come. That's not being exclusive, right? The thing that people don't like about Jesus, though, is that he has terms to come. He has terms by which you need to come. Look, he accepts you just as you are. Wherever you are in this path, he accepts you right now. But there's an expectation that as he walks, you walk with him. Which means if he walks down this path and you say, ah, Jesus, that's not really my thing. I kind of hang out with this crowd over here. If Jesus is going this way, which way do you have to go? You got to go with him. See, here's the thing. If there is a man, and Christianity says there is a man, who is strong enough to conquer death, to conquer hell, to conquer the grave, you've got to do what he says. Amen? We don't like that, though, because that requires that we let go of control. We're going to talk about this. Oh, we're going to talk about it. It's really what Christianity is. Christianity is a series of decisions on our part, on my part, over and over again of continually letting go of the reins and handing them to him. Of saying, Holy Spirit, I think I know how to do this, but I'm going to let you show me. I, th I feel so confident in doing this in my strength, but I'm going to let you lead me, Right? Look, it, it's, it's kind of easier in our weakness, isn't it? When, when like I'm already drowning in life and I can't get it together. Why do you think those are the people that Jesus calls, right? And, and you know, we, there's this mistaken idea that Jesus like loves those people more, like people whose lives are falling apart and all that stuff. I, I don't think that's what it is. I think it's those people that are more often to accept the invitation from Jesus. 
And so when we see Jesus go to these people, you know, the, the, the mistake we can make is, well, Jesus always went to the downcast and the, you know, the, the misfits of society, and we turn that into like a thing. I, I don't think it was just that, because Jesus went to the Pharisees and Sadducees too. He just fought them all the time, right? Because they weren't interested in hearing what he had to say. When Jesus went to those who were down and out, when he went to those who didn't fit in, they accepted him because they had been down that road. They had said, I've tried this whole life thing, Jesus, and clearly <laughs> it's not working for me. I'm on my seventh husband. I'm on, you know, whatever it is, however their life was falling apart. We see the same thing today. People who have their lives together, they don't need a savior, do they? Why would you need a savior? I've got it pretty well together. I'm a pretty good person. But the Bible says none of us have it together. We all need a Savior. But that requires us doing it His way. That requires us living in this resurrection life that He offers. Jesus Christ never went back to the grave, did He? And neither should we. This is a problem that I see in Christianity today. There's this story that we're told in the Bible in John 11 where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And when he raises Lazarus from the dead, he says something, and it has always grabbed me when he says this. But Lazarus comes out of the tomb, and what Jesus says to him after he comes out, he talks to the people who are around Lazarus, and he says, take the grave clothes off and set him free. When I look at the church world that we have today, I see a lot of Christians who are raised to newness of life who are still running around in grave clothes. We, we, we have been raised with Jesus. We're a new creation, but we keep those grave clothes on and we still stink like death. The Bible tells us, the New Testament tells us over and over again to put on Christ, Right? Literally, to put Jesus on like clothing. And that, that word that it uses for clothing is like a form-fitting garment. Like, you know, the Under Armour stuff that you put on. It's like, you don't wear it out in public because it shows everything. And so if you haven't been to the gym enough, you don't wear that out. You always put something over it. But it's, it's like clingy, right? When the Bible says to put on Christ, that word it used to be clothed with him is that kind of garment where it, it's sticking to everything, right? But too many Christians, we run around in our grave clothes. We still keep running back to our old sins and our old habits. And we've got excuses, but we don't put on Christ. We don't live in his fullness that he's offered us. We don't live the resurrection life. If Jesus Christ has really set us free, then let's be free, right? Let's live free. Guys, if God has given us this power, and too many times in Christianity we turn this power into miracles and supernatural and all this stuff, let's get down to the basics, because all of the miracles and all of the supernatural and all of that stuff, it's all made for one purpose, for you to be holy as he is holy. So let's use that power to escape the life of sin. Let's walk in the Spirit and let's not sin anymore. You know, you guys have heard me say this before. This is one of the first lessons my father-in-law taught me. But in 1 John, it says, If we sin... We have an advocate, who is Jesus, to stand in our place, right? But, but too many of us read that as when we sin, we have an advocate because we take sin as if it's going to happen automatically. Why would John tell us if we sin, if it weren't possible to completely leave sin behind? Why would he say that? I, I, this isn't taught in Christianity today, right? Right? I mean, I, maybe, maybe I'm missing it. Maybe there's somebody out there who's teaching it. I hope there is because it's biblical. It'd be really great if we only taught biblical things in Christianity, wouldn't it? But this isn't taught today. Today in our hyper-grace culture in the church, we, we take sin for granted. Of course, Christian, you're going to sin. 
where? What if God gave us the power to completely leave that life behind? And y'all, maybe I'm crazy, but I think he has. I think that as long, and I, well, I don't even think. I know when I walk in the Spirit, when Jeremy walks in the Spirit, I don't sin. Do you guys know that? The Holy Spirit has never led me once to sin, not one time. Isn't that interesting? So if you walk down that path just a little ways, it doesn't even take like years and years of walking down that path. If I walk in the Spirit all the time, I won't sin. Right? Isn't that logical? But so many times we think, and so many times the church teaches, just do your best. Your best is good enough. It'll get you there. And look, grace covers all, right? I'm not saying that people who believe that aren't going to go to heaven. What, what I am saying is, if God's given us a way to leave sin behind, don't you want to take it? Y'all, if God's given me the, the power to conquer the sin that is in my life, I, I want to take it. I want to be holy like Jesus is holy. I want to look like him. So let's live the resurrection life. That was a long intro, sorry. That went off script and that's what happens. But that's what we're talking about today. This is the intro. We're talking about the intro to this resurrection life. So let me give you just a quick intro on what's going on here. This is the book of Romans. We're going to spend, I don't even know how long this sermon series is going to last. We're going to go until Jesus says to stop. So we're going to go through the book of Romans, and we're going to start at Romans 1, and we're going to go until Jesus says stop. So in this Romans 1, we read the intro today, and this widely accepted, there is nobody who fights this. Paul is the author of this letter to the Roman church. And even if it wasn't titled Romans, he says in the introduction that he's writing to the church in Rome, right? Uh, it's widely accepted that this uh, uh, letter was written in A.D. 57. Uh, that would have been 20 or so years after Jesus had died. So still, I mean, when you're talking about as far as like history goes, you're still really fresh off of the resurrection. There are a lot of skeptics of the faith who say that Christianity is a fable, that his, his followers, you know, developed these stories and made up these tall tales over time to embellish what Jesus did. Any literary critic, anybody who knows anything about literature will tell you that's hogwash. They may not believe in Jesus, they might, may not believe in the Bible, but they will tell you that is not possible. Because at this time, when the, when the letter of Romans was written, when any of these gospels were written, there were too many eyewitnesses still alive. There were too many people who could have said, hold on a second, I was there and this never happened. And so it, it can't be that. Uh, they believe that Paul wrote this letter in his third missionary journey. If you're interested, you can read about that. Uh, it's in Acts 20. So when you go home and read Acts 20, you'll get an, a general idea of where Paul was when he's writing this letter to the church in Rome. Uh, at this point in time, Paul had not yet visited the church in Rome. Uh, if you read the end of the books in book of Acts, you'll find out that Paul eventually got there. Uh, in this introduction, he says that it's his, his desire to visit the church there, but he hadn't been there yet. It took him getting arrested, getting beaten, claiming to be a Roman citizen, and then appealing his case <clears throat> excuse me, to the emperor, all of that, to get him to Rome. Uh, so he didn't get to Rome as a free man. He got there as a prisoner. Uh, and he actually stayed there uh, the majority of the time there as a prisoner until he was martyred for his faith. Um, Paul did not plant the church in Rome, uh, but he did. his desire was to go visit to impart his gifts to that church. Uh, the church was primarily made of Gentiles. Now here's the big thing. So there's your little history lesson. I hate history. Could you tell? I, yeah, I don't like any of that stuff. It's like, just get it over with and get me to the good stuff but I don't, like, I don't like history. So those of you who like history, you're welcome. Now, here's the thing that we need to know about the church in Rome. I do believe that the church in Rome is, or is very in a similar position to where we are as Christians today. Rome as a city is in a very similar position to where we are getting in the Western world. And that is, in Rome, spiritually speaking, people were hungry but they didn't believe in jesus they couldn't really yet 
the Christianity was brand new, so they didn't know about it yet. We are on the other side of that, where people are spiritually hungry, but they don't want what the church is offering anymore. Now, here's the thing. As Christians today, there are a lot of Christians who fight that, right? The problem we have today is that for the long time, the church in America had a position of status and power. The church was well-respected. We have done a bang-up job at trashing that respect, right? The abuses that the powerful in the church have done, things that have happened in the church, things the church has done, has completely abused that, and now we're on the other side where popularity of the church is declining, and we find ourselves in a similar position because Christianity was not acceptable in Rome. Christianity was not an acceptable religion. Judaism was. The Jews were accepted, but the Jews didn't like Christianity, right? And so Christianity was not an acceptable religion, but the people were spiritually hungry. And so as we read the book of Romans, we have to look at what Paul does. Paul's not hammering the world, saying, look at the sinful world. Everybody, look at the sinful world and condemn them. It's not what he says, is it? You guys, I don't know if you know this, but this, this book, the Bible, it's actually written to Christians, right? It's written to the church, right? Sometimes we treat it as if it's like, you know, a, a pamphlet that we hand out to people so that they can come to salvation. That's not what it is. That's not why Paul wrote the letter to the Roman church. Because guess what the Roman church needed more than anything? If you, if you look at the Bible... You can say, what, what's God saying to all of us? He's saying, don't go hand this book to people who don't believe. He's saying, read this book and live this book and show people what belief in this book looks like. Right? When Paul is writing this letter to a church in Rome, a church surrounded by people who are hungry for spirituality, so hungry they will worship anything, if there's a God who can make them rich, I'm going to worship that God. If there's a God who can make them studly and handsome, I'm going to worship that God. A God who can bring in the ladies, oh, that's what I want, I'm going to worship that God. You pick, you pick and choose. But these are all gods who are going to get them ahead in life. Paul doesn't come out and condemn that right away. He doesn't agree with it, but he doesn't condemn it. He says, Christian, show them a better way. Christian, live your life in a way, live your life in this resurrection power to show them that there is a real God, that there is a better way, and that is what we need to do. So, before we get into what Paul talks about, we're going to look at who Paul is, all right, and we're going to break this down. We're going to look at who is Paul, we're going to look at what is he doing, and then we're going to look at how is he doing it. So first off, who is Paul? Now this hits with us, Paul as an individual, Paul as a disciple of Jesus, resonates with us a little more than some of the other disciples. Because we have something in common with Paul, whether we know it or not. Paul did not meet Jesus face to face. Paul never, when Jesus was alive, Paul never interacted with Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry. Now, you know, you can speculate, but I am almost certain that if Paul had met Jesus during Jesus' time on earth, we would have been told about it, right? Even if he would have met him as a Pharisee. Paul started as a Pharisee. We're going to get there, but he, he didn't have any interaction. Paul also, immediately speaking, didn't have any interaction with the resurrected Jesus. When Jesus was resurrected in bodily form, walking the earth, teaching his other disciples, Paul did not have any interaction with Jesus during that time. This becomes a little problematic when the pastor of your church stands up here on an Easter Sunday and tells you that an encounter with Jesus is the most important thing that you will ever experience, right? How in the world, Paul, y'all know this, if you go through and count the books of the New Testament, Paul wrote over half of the New Testament books. Do you know that? 
If the person who wrote over half of the New Testament books did not have a direct encounter with Jesus, that's a problem. It kind of shoots a hole in the theory that we posed last week. But it's not a problem. Because what we see from Paul shows that he relates to the type of experience that we have with Jesus. So first of all, in Romans 1, as Jana read to us, we see that Paul says, this is Paul, I am Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. This is how Paul introduces himself to the church in Rome. I think some of us would be better off if we started introducing ourselves this way to people. Hey, y'all, I'm Jeremy, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, right? Kind of takes the pride right out of it, doesn't it? I think we like the child of God because it look, makes it look like we've got status, right? Hi, I'm Jeremy. I'm a child of God. I've got status. Bondservant, there's no status, right? Hey, I'm a doormat for Jesus. He can walk all over me. He can do whatever he wants. Wipe mud on me, poop, whatever, Jesus. I'm down. If Jesus says it, I'm good. That's how we should introduce ourselves, isn't it? You don't like that teaching, do you? Here's the deal. You aren't Paul. Breathe a sigh of relief there, right? You're not Paul, but you are. Every single one of you, every person watching online, you are called. You are set apart for his gospel. You must stand confidently in that. And you will never be able to stand confidently in that if you don't have an experience with the resurrected Jesus Christ. Where does Paul get his confidence from? First, who was Paul? Some of you know this already. This is from the book of Acts. It says, now when they heard this, they were infuriated and they began gnashing their teeth at him. This is Stephen. This is, Stephen is the first martyr for the Christian faith. He preaches Jesus and they kill him for it. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, looked intently into the heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they shouted with loud voices, covered their ears, and rushed at him with one mind. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their cloaks at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul is Paul. Just real quick, I got to do this because I hate this. It drives me nuts. There's this teaching out there that Paul was Saul, and then when, when Saul was converted to Christianity, he changed his name to Paul. It, throw it out the window, y'all. It sounds really nice. It's not true. Back then, especially Paul, who would have been a Roman citizen, Paul was a Roman citizen, it was very common that they would have a Jewish name and then also a Roman name. And so Paul had two names. And so it's kind of, I had actually had uh, my, my first pastor, no, not my first pastor, one of my pastors, he told me uh, one time, he was like, well, what is, what is my title here? Like, what, what am I the pastor of? Like, whatever. And he said, just, it doesn't matter, just make it up. If you're writing to somebody in the city, tell them, tell them you're the pastor of city management. If you're the, writing to somebody in the fields, tell them you're the pastor of agriculture. Like, just make it up, whatever you want to be. That's kind of what Paul's doing here. Whatever name served him best, that's the name he's going to lead off with. Now, we refer to him, biblically speaking, after he has this conversion, he's only called Paul afterwards. So there's this teaching, and it's, it's a cute teaching. It, you know, it's nice, like, oh, Paul radically transformed, and now he changed his name. Okay, if, if you come to faith in Jesus, you don't have to change your name. It's not a big deal. But just so you know, that's soapbox off. That's it. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. Now Saul approved of putting Stephen to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except for the apostles. We see that in Acts 7 uh, through 8. Then, fast forward to Acts 9, and we see something happen to Saul, the persecutor. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters for him, from him to the synagogues in Damascus, that, so that if he found any belonging to the way, whether men or women, he might bring them in shackles to Jerusalem. 
Now, as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told to you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. That point is significant. Don't forget what we said. Remember what we talked about with tall tales and rumors and all that stuff? By telling us, by the Bible telling us that there were men with Saul who heard the voice, what the Bible is saying without saying is, if you don't believe my story, Luke is the one who wrote the book of Acts, Luke is saying, if you don't believe me, there are people out there who can confirm this story, right? So we wouldn't just make this up. Saul's conversion was very real. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. Leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. Then the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and lay hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many people about this man, how much harm he did to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer in behalf of my, my name. I kind of wonder if Ananias would have gone if God wouldn't have put that little plug in there. Like, yeah, this guy's persecuting the church, but don't worry, Ananias. He's going to get his. Like, just get him to me. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like fish scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. And he got up and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were in Damascus. What happened to Paul that transformed him from a persecutor of the church of Jesus Christ into one of the boldest proclaimers of the gospel of Jesus Christ that this world has ever seen. He had an encounter with Jesus, right? This is exactly what we talked about last week. Paul saw the resurrected Jesus. And he was never the same afterwards. Ladies and gentlemen, you can too. Now look, we covered this. You're not Paul, right? Your experience with the resurrected Jesus isn't going to look exactly like Paul. Your experience won't be the same. But here's great news. God knows what you need more than you know what you need, right? Now, I have seen this all of the time, you know, being mainly in Pentecostal churches. This happens a lot with baptism in the Holy Spirit. There are lots of churches that believe that when you're baptized in the Holy Spirit, you immediately start speaking another language. And so there's, there's parts in the Bible that say when people were baptized, we're going to read one of them, when people are baptized in the Holy Spirit, they start speaking this other language. They, start, they call it tongues. So they start speaking in tongues. So there are some interpretations of that that say you cannot be baptized in the Holy Spirit without the initial physical evidence of speaking in tongues. Right? Let it go. All I have seen I, I shouldn't say all I've seen. I've seen some people baptized in the Spirit, and that happens. A lot of what I have seen is that people don't have that type of experience. They get hung up on it, and they turn it into this, well, God must not care about me. Well, God must not want me. God must not love me. God must not, right? Y'all, if you go home and pray, God, I want you to blind me for three days and something like scales from a fish cover my eyes and I have this experience and he doesn't give it to you, that doesn't mean God doesn't love you. That doesn't mean God doesn't want you to experience him. 
it means that your experience is different than what Saul's experience is. And y'all, God knows best, right? Saul had to persecute the church before he had this experience with Saul or with, with God, right? There are things in your life that you must walk through before you're ready for an experience with Christ. So what do you do until then? You keep praying. Y'all, if you want to speak in tongues, keep praying for it. Keep praying for it, right? Y'all, if you want an experience, I told, you, I told some of y'all this. I don't remember if I said it on a Sunday or if it was at the Wednesday night thing, but I heard this story from, from a friend of mine who said that you know, he had a dream of Jesus and saw Jesus, and it was like the Revelation Jesus, and when you looked in his eyes, he could see the eyes of fire that Revelation tell us that Jesus has, and he said that he looked into his eyes and saw those eyes of fire, and everything just melted away, that he could tangibly feel the love of Jesus through those eyes, and it just melted everything else away, and after I heard that story, I was like, holy cow, Jesus, like, yes, please, like, where, where do I sign up for that order? Like Amazon, send that in two days. Like that's awesome, right? I, I haven't had it yet. So I gave up and stopped praying for it. And no. Keep seeking. Keep praying. Keep asking. Keep after it. You know, it's it's kind of like my parents used to tell me this all the time, but you know, like what's the worst thing that could happen? They say no, right? Well, I, I really want to ask this girl out, but I'm nervous she's gonna say no. Okay, so she says no. Then you have your answer, right? You don't have to worry about it anymore. Right? What's the worst thing that happens? Jesus says, no. I got something different for you. And he knows us better than anyone else. So while I'm sitting there thinking, oh yeah, when I see those eyes of fire, it's going to melt me. Maybe it's not that. Maybe I open my Bible one morning and I read Psalm 139 and it hits me so deeply and I am moved so deeply that I just drop the word of God, I just drop my Bible, and I just sit there in awe, like, oh my God, I can't believe that, that you love me. I can't believe that you see me, that I am yours, right? God knows what experience you need. Seek him, right? Not the particular experience. Seek him. The Holy Spirit knows what you need. The question is, do you actually want this? Now see, this is the problem that we have for those of us who have been in the church for a little while, right? Let's be real honest. Can we be honest for a minute and stop pretending? We know the right answers, right? So at the end of service today, we're going to give an altar call and everybody who's ready to have that experience with the Lord, you stand up and you flood these altars. And every single person gets up and floods these altars. What we don't realize is that half of us who stand up and flood these altars do it because they don't want everybody to turn around and see them as the sinner sitting back in their seat. Right? Well, if I don't go up there, Sister Mary, she's going to think that I'm right. So we fake it. Fake it till you make it, right? Wrong. When are we going to start being authentic with each other? <laughs> right? Because this is the thing. We know the right answers. So when we say, do you want an encounter with Jesus? Yes, pastor, of course I do. Do you want an encounter with Jesus? Because here's the thing. An encounter with Jesus isn't something that you have. I'm afraid this is what we've bought it into. We, we're, we're, we're super emotional in our culture today, right? So an encounter with Jesus is this emotional experience. And I get, ooh, yay, fuzzies and warm. And then I get to go right back to my sin lifestyle afterwards. That's not a real encounter with Jesus. If an encounter with Jesus leaves you feeling fuzzy and warm about the person who you are and you don't need to change, you haven't met the real Jesus. Every scriptural encounter with Jesus. Old and New Testament, you all know that? Yeah, theologically speaking, Jesus shows up in the Old Testament, right? It's called a Christophany. You want to surprise your friends with fancy Christian words. 
every encounter with Jesus ends the same. Us broken on the floor. Realizing that life can never be the same. So when I ask you, do you want an encounter with Jesus? Jesus knows, y'all, right? It's like Santa Claus. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. But he's real. Jesus knows how serious you are about this encounter. So stop lying to him, right? Instead of coming and saying, Jesus, I want an encounter with you, like Pastor Jeremy said. Come to him and say, Jesus, I am terrified. Jesus, I don't want you to course correct me. Jesus, I've got this job and it's going really well. And I feel like if I start following you, it's going to force me to make some decisions that I cannot do this anymore or that I can't be successful in this anymore, or that I have to let go of this relationship. And Jesus, I don't want to. Jesus already knows, y'all. He sees your every thought before it even crosses your mind. Before a word comes out of your mouth, he knows it. Can we start being real with him? Because Jesus will never, ever deny someone who is real with him. If you're scared, take your fears to him because he will calm those fears. He will reassure you with his love. He will show you himself. And I promise you, y'all, yes, when you come to Jesus and you see him and you experience him, it forces you to change. It forces you to make some life decisions that are going to drastically alter everything but I have never talked to a true disciple of Christ who has ever regretted that decision. I have never talked to a true disciple of Christ who said, yeah, Jesus, there was a line in the sand, and he said, Jeremy, you can't go back to that. And I really wish I would have gone that way because I missed that. I've never heard a Christian say that because God is so good. And like David writes in the Psalms, once you've tasted and seen, once you've tasted and seen that he is good, there is no turning back. But we've got to be real. We've got to stop faking it. And that real encounter with Jesus won't let us be. When we look at Paul, this is funny to say, it's going to sound kind of weird, I I think Paul's heart was in the right place. (laughs) He's killing Christians and his heart was in the right place. That'll get you on some billboards, right? But what was he doing? Paul was taught throughout his entire faith as a Jew that anybody who worshipped anyone who wasn't God deserved death, right? And so so Paul's doing what he thought's best. I think this is important for us Christian as we move forward here. You know, I I don't want people to think I hate the church, (laughs) I rag on the church a lot, right? I I talk about how the Western church misses a lot of things. I I do that because I love the church. I want the church to be better. I want us as God's body, as Christ's church, to be better and to be more biblically centered than what we are currently right now in our culture. That doesn't mean that I hate the church, right? And when we look at people who are doing things in Christianity that are goofy, I think it's kind of easy to look at them like some people look at the Pharisees. Oh, Pharisees, they do church different than us. They, oh, they don't know what they're doing. They're, they're so evil and wicked. That's not what God says anywhere. Even when Jesus comes at the Pharisees and corrects them, he does it in love. He wants them to turn and to come to him. But he still loves them, Right? Tim Keller said this once and it drastically because I used to be that way. I used to look at people who were legalists and I used to look down my nose at them, right? And then I read a Keller quote that said, the quickest way to become a Pharisee is to be pharisaical towards Pharisees. Something like that, right? But, but that's what happens, right? Because just like people who are legalists judge, oh, those people are free grace over there. We're so much better. God died for all of them, Right? And so we need to love all of them. So we've got to show them that there's a better way. Paul was taught the wrong thing. 
You know, my father-in-law says this all the time, but, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll rag about somebody and like, oh, so-and-so did this to me, and they, they clearly don't even know the gospel. And he'll say, Jeremy, I just don't think anybody's discipled with them. Van, can you let me have this? Can you let me have my vent session? But it's true, right? Paul was never discipled to be a Christian. And so he did what he thought best. And on the road to Damascus, God said, Paul, I know you want to see me. I know you want to experience me. And so I'm going to show you. But the Jesus that showed up was nothing like Paul was expecting. I think when Jesus shows up to a lot of us, he is nothing like what we're expecting. And that's a good thing. That's part of what makes it such a life-changing encounter. But as soon as Paul saw the resurrected Jesus, it changed everything. And we know that because we see what he did. What was Paul doing? Paul's radically changed. And it caused him to go and do what? Be radically obedient to the Holy Spirit. Paul was radically obedient to what God was asking of him. He was saved, he was baptized, he was baptized in the Holy Spirit, and immediately he went out and he did exactly what God told him to do. It's what he tells the church in Rome. For my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. What does, God, what does Paul say he's doing, right? He's preaching the gospel. And is he doing it only in word? He's not. Lots of times when we hear preach the gospel, we assume it's just word, right? If you say, oh, you've got to preach the gospel, everybody assumes they've got to come up here and stand behind this little table and preach the gospel, right? That's not what preaching the gospel is. When you proclaim the gospel, you do it in thought, in word, and in deed. All of it. Run through faith. That's proclaiming the gospel. So Paul says right here, right? He says the righteous one will live by faith. Why would Paul say that if he wasn't living by faith? Why would Paul say that if those who proclaim the gospel, those who hear the gospel, weren't to live by faith? You have got to live the gospel. And Paul here is joining in on a much greater calling than what God was telling him to do individually. Now, we covered this. You're not Paul. That doesn't mean you're not called to do some of the things that Paul does, right? Don't hide behind that. Because Paul's calling comes from Jesus Christ himself. Jesus is calling to all his disciples. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to follow all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is known as the Great Commission, right? But it is not the only commission, because in Mark 16, 15, Jesus says, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. John 20, 21, he says, Peace be to you, just as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And Acts 1, 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and as far as the remotest part of the earth. Go into all the world and disciple all the nations. Proclaim the gospel to all creation. Exactly as the Father has sent me, I send you. And wait for the Holy Spirit and be my witnesses. What is God asking of us? If you've been here for a while, you've heard this before. I stole this from my father-in-law. You're more than welcome to steal it from me. The resurrected Jesus taught two things. Wait on the Spirit and disciple. Those are the two things that Jesus taught in his resurrected body when he was here. 
wait on the Spirit, and disciple. You look at every single one of those commissions, break it down, that's what he's saying. Wait on the Spirit, and disciple. And really, I think that those are actually just one thing. I think you can combine those things into one thing, and that is disciple. Disciple. This is a core belief here at the Gospel House. It's on our website, so you know it's a core belief. Just kidding. But it is a core belief. We disciple with others as the Holy Spirit disciples with us. You've heard me say this before. When I disciple with someone else, all I am doing is teaching them. Guys, on Sunday morning, all I'm doing, I hate to blow up your idea of what my sermon prep looks like and all this stuff. All I'm doing is telling you what the Holy Spirit's telling me. That's all I'm doing. So when you disciple with people at your workplace, when you disciple with people at a restaurant, when you disciple, all you're doing is telling them what God's telling you, what God is doing in you, right? If Jesus healed you over the weekend, you better be telling somebody about it, right? If you came to church and somebody prayed over you and you started speaking in tongues, tell somebody. If you heard one of the worship songs this morning and it resonated with you and you love the chorus, tell somebody. They don't even have to be Christian. Tell somebody. You never know what little seed you're going to plant that might be the straw that pushes somebody over the edge. That might be the invitation. Man, they really like that worship song. That's kind of... Maybe I, should go, maybe I should go check out the church. Maybe I should listen to it on the radio. Maybe I should, you never know. So we disciple with others as the Holy Spirit disciples with us. Y'all, what was Paul doing? All through Paul's ministry that we read about in Acts, all through Paul's letters that he's writing to these other churches, he's discipling with others as the Holy Spirit discipled with him. This is a trap that we fall into as Christians today. We read these stories, we read what Jesus did, we read the book of Acts, we read these letters, at what the disciples were doing, and we think that they did these things on their own power, right? You know that Paul walks up to these people on the street in the book of Acts and get up and rise, and they pop up, you know, that he goes down and prays for this little boy who just fell out a window and says, hey, you're not dead, get up, and he gets up, right? If you're curious, read the book of Acts, you'll find all this stuff out. That happens in the book of Acts. But we, re- we read all these things and we think, oh yeah, man, I'm going to go do that. Y- y'all, as the Holy Spirit discipled with these people, they went and did what the Spirit said. This gets twisted a lot when we come to Jesus. You know, a lot of people will point out every single person that Jesus prayed for and laid hands on in his earthly ministry was healed. That leads some people to come to the conclusion that it is Jesus' desire, that it's God's desire to heal everyone. All right? That's that's tricky, theologically speaking. Some of us know that, right? Because we've prayed for healing that hasn't come. And that can break people. If you're taught over and over again, what's God's desire to heal everyone? That will break you if that's what you've been taught your whole life and somebody doesn't tell you if it's God's will right? We get into this tricky thing. Jesus healed 100% of the people he prayed for because Jesus only did what he saw the Father doing and only said what he heard the Father saying. Y'all, can I, spoiler alert, can I tell you a secret? You can have 100% of your prayers answered, but you've got to pray only what the Holy Spirit tells you to pray, right? That doesn't, and I don't want to say, like, that doesn't make it wrong to pray for other things, right? I've got this thing on my prayer list because I felt like God told me it a long time ago. I'll tell you guys this. I don't care now. I've kind of been on the fence about whether I should keep praying for it or not, but I felt a while ago that God, this is a long, long time ago, years, that God, there was a building that I was looking at when I was at the old church, and it was, the cost of the building was $6.5 million dollars. And so I thought, why not? I'm going to pray for it. And so I started praying for it. And I actually was flipping through some of my old prayer request things that I have on my, saved on my phone. And I saw it in there. And I was like, God, I'm going to keep praying for it. Why not? It'd be nice for the gospel house to get $6.5 million. So here we are. So I'm still praying for it. Listen, did the Holy Spirit tell me to pray it? No. Am I still going to pray it when I wake up tomorrow? You better believe it. 
Because if by God's grace, he happens to bless us with $6.5 million, I'm going to be the first one up here on Sunday morning to tell you, I prayed for that, y'all. What do you think now? Right? It's not bad to pray. If you're praying for healing, if you're seeking something, you're like, don't sit there and wrestle like, oh, I don't know, did the Holy Spirit... You're not going to get to heaven and God's going to be like, well, Jeremy, you only had a 33% batting average when it came to prayer, so you got to go sit over on that side. He doesn't work like that, right? But when we pray, it's super beneficial, y'all, to ask the Holy Spirit what we should be praying, right? Because he may lead us down a road that we weren't expecting. He may say, Jeremy, you think you're struggling with this sin in your life, but you actually need to correct this first. Correct this relationship, and then that's going to solve itself. Get this right, pray for somebody to be accountable to in this life, and you're going to stop struggling with that sin because you're not going to want to tell them that you screwed up, right? So we may be praying for the wrong thing, and the Holy Spirit will correct us about that. But y'all, all of the underlying implications here, this is implied all throughout Scripture, and we miss it. These disciples, as they do these things that are written about in this book, they are all being radically obedient to what the Holy Spirit is telling them to do. Jesus Christ said in his great commission that he is not going to leave us alone, right? And behold, I am with you to the very end of the age, which means, y'all, we're in big trouble because if Jesus isn't with us, there's nobody discipling us. And then I'm just sitting here raising up disciples of Jeremy and you're all going to be just as screwed up as me but that is not what I'm doing here, y'all. I want you to be disciples of the Holy Spirit first. I don't want disciples of Jeremy. Paul says the exact same thing in 1 Corinthians, right? The, first, the Corinthian church is freaking out about whether Barnabas baptized some of them or Paul or whatever. He's saying, you aren't my disciples. You're his. The Holy Spirit is leading you. See, I don't think we like this as the, as a, as the church, because that, I have to let go of control, right? If you come up to me and say, well, Jeremy, the Holy Spirit's telling me that I need to go do this. Okay, if that's what the Holy Spirit's telling you, right? Well, Jeremy, the Holy Spirit's telling me that I'm supposed to go, you know, strap on a bomb and blow up an abortion clinic. Okay, now we have some issues because that goes against quite a few things in here, right? Measure it all through here. But y'all, you're discipled by the Holy Spirit. Not by me, not by Tim Keller, not by none of it. You're discipled by the Holy Spirit. That's how it works. But there's a trick to this. Because see, sometimes we get focused on the wrong thing. Right? We ask the question, how did Paul do it? Right? We hinted at this towards the beginning. But when we introduce ourselves in our culture, what do we always introduce ourselves as? Hi, I'm Jeremy, I'm pastor at the Gospel House, right? My wife says, hi, I'm Jana, I teach third grade at Kenwood Elementary, right? You do the same thing, you don't teach third grade at Kenwood Elementary or pastor of the Gospel House, but we always lead off with what we do, right? Because our culture is obsessed with doing. There's a problem with that and the gospel. Those things butt heads. Because the gospel's primary emphasis is not doing. The gospel is all about being. The gospel doesn't ask what you do. God doesn't say, what have you done for me lately? God says, who are you? Who are you? Right? I love this quote. This is from British minister Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, The gospel places all its primary emphasis upon being rather than doing. The gospel puts a greater weight upon our attitude than upon our actions. That's why we're told when we're told to give, we're told to give cheerfully, right? Because it's not about the act of giving. It's about the attitude of generosity behind the action. So the question isn't, what did Paul do? The question is, how did he do it? We make all of these commissions, and I, I have a beef with some of these, you know, we write all these books and stuff about disciple-making. How do we make disciples? Because we want cookie-cutter Christians, right? We want assembly lines that just crank out thousands and thousands of Christians that all look and do exactly the same, because those are the easiest Christians to manage, 
If every Christian knows that they do this, 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 and this, they wake up at 5 a.m., they read their word for 30 minutes, they pray for 30 minutes, they go to the gym, they work out and take care of the temple of the Lord, then they go, we want cookie-cutter Christians. God doesn't do that. Because when God calls you, he calls you. And he calls you to be who you are in Christ. And the very first thing you are called is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. You have to be before you can do. That's why this requires Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a noise like a violent rushing wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And tongues that looked like fire appeared to them, distributing themselves, and a tongue rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with different tongues as the Spirit was giving them the ability to speak. You must be filled with the Holy Spirit. If you want to do any of this resurrection stuff, why is it such a vital aspect? Because when you call yourself a Christian, who do you have to do it like? Jesus, right? You don't call yourself a Christian and go, then go live like Paul. You don't call yourself a Christian and go live like Jeremy. You don't call yourself a Christian and go live like Buddha, right? If you're a Christian, you live like Jesus. And we see from Matthew 3, this is how Jesus started his ministry. This is before Jesus did anything in his earthly ministry. Said so Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have the need to be baptized by you, and yet you are coming to me. But Jesus answered, said, or answering said to him, Allow it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. After he was baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened. Uh, sorry, I lost my place. And he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and settling upon him. And behold, a voice from the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is different than every other Old Testament interaction with the Holy Spirit. If you go through and read the Old Testament and when the Holy Spirit shows up, it tells us that the Holy Spirit comes upon people, right? Different kings, different men, different, different things, women, that the Holy Spirit comes upon them, they perform the act that they were meant to do, and then the Holy Spirit leaves. That's how the Holy Spirit operated in the Old Testament. But when it came upon Jesus, I think the closest we have to Jesus is actually, we just read it in our Bible in a year plan this week, but is King David. Because when the Holy Spirit is anointed by, or David is anointed by Samuel, the Holy Spirit, it says, it rushes upon David, upon his anointing, and it stayed with him for the rest of his life. Now, here's the difference. David, the Holy Spirit, stayed with him but there are moments that we have recorded where David stepped out of the Spirit and did his own thing. Not once did the Holy Spirit leave Jesus. The Holy Spirit came upon Jesus and lived in Jesus. And not one time did Jesus step out of the Spirit. Not one time did Jesus say, You know what? I'm in the desert. It's been 40 days. I'm pretty hungry. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make myself a little bread from this rock because I need something to eat. Not once. He only did what he saw the Father doing. He only said what he heard the Father saying. Why is it so vital for us that Acts 2, this baptism in the Spirit, comes before we do anything? because we'll screw it up, right? Anybody want to agree? <laughs> I've done things in Jeremy's strength. I've done things with my wisdom, and it's a mess. But when I let God do it, it works out better than I could ever imagine. It doesn't look like it right away, does it? If we're being honest. And that's when we're tempted to grab those reins back, right? Right? 
we start doing it. It's like, God, hold on. You said that if I started following you, you were going to do some stuff for me, and this person's still sick, and this person's not getting better, and that job's not improving, and we're tempted. I'm going to this way. But if we just let it go, God's way is always best. The Holy Spirit knows how to disciple you. He knows what you need. This is how Paul ministered. It's how Peter ministered. It's how John ministered. Any of the 120 disciples that were there on that day of Pentecost, this is how they ministered. Any of the disciples who came afterwards, the thousands upon thousands we see in the book of Acts, the millions of Christians that, that have come to faith since then and walk by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is discipling them. The Holy Spirit is not going to let you go down the wrong path. We hit on this earlier, but as we close here, let's double down. We must read the entirety of the gospel in the book of Acts through this lens. This spirit-led, this resurrection life lens. Look at what Jesus did. Look at what the disciples did. Look at what Paul did. But how did they do it? We've got a lot of Christianity that will point you to pray, do things, right? God, teach me to do this. God, I want to do this. I want to pray for this and see people healed. I want my ministry to be like this. Why don't we start focusing on the how prayers, though? Why don't we focus on the be prayers? Who were these people before they did anything? Guys, I think this is one of the most powerful points that the gospel could ever make. And I'm, I, I want to close with this. Jesus Christ did not do anything. Not, not a single act, not a single miracle, not a single healing. He had not done anything yet. And when he was baptized and came out of the water, God himself said, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. See, that's the exact opposite of legalism, isn't it? It's the exact opposite of what, what we think on this earth should be, right? Because when your son obeys, when my son obeys me, then I say, yes, yes, I'm proud of you. Yes, my son, you became a professional NFL player, and now I'm proud of you, right? Right? And y'all, some of us get daddy issues with that stuff, right? <laughs> but guys, that's not the gospel. That's not how God works. God pronounces over every single one of you, hear this, if you hear nothing else for the rest of your life, the moment you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God says, you are my son. You are my daughter in whom I am well pleased. Can you believe it? For all of the things that I've screwed up in the past, for all of the ways sin has made me an absolute wretch of a human being, and God doesn't wait for me to get my act together. He doesn't wait for me to be living right for a couple years before he takes me in. He says at the exact moment that I say, God, I'm done. I'm ready to give you the reins and I'm ready to let you have your way. He says, this is my child in whom I am well pleased. Before you do anything for him, I've started parenting my children this way since I've learned the gospel. I tell Elam that all the time. Elam always wants to know, Dad, are you proud of me? And my answer is always the same. Elam, I'm not proud of you because of a football game. I'm proud of you because you're my son. And nothing you can ever do will make me less proud of you. The Father feels the exact same way about you. 
that's the encounter of Jesus, with Jesus that you need, y'all. The Father is standing over you right now saying, you are my child. That's who you are, y'all. On your best day, on your worst day, you're his child, and he is proud of you. Amen? Amen. Thank you for listening to the Gospel House Podcast. We pray that you are pointed to Jesus and will apply what you learn to look more like him each and every day. If you found today's message impactful, do us a favor and hit the follow button, leave us a rating, and write up a review to help others find our podcast. You can also help us by sharing the podcast so that together we can show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Head to our website, www.thegospel.house backslash connect. Fill out the form and someone from our Gospel House family will connect with you. God bless you. And remember, the gospel of Jesus Christ is always enough.